You are listening to Audio Fanfic Podcast. Not Orpheus, Not Eurydice, by Cecily Sass on AO3. Rated teen and up. She suggests going to feed the ducks on the river. It surprises them both because it isn't a very good idea. They've been working the case all day and should definitely go back to the motel to rest and find dinner. It'll soon be dark, and they don't have anything to feed ducks. He parks the car without hesitation, looks over at her. Okay, he says, let's do it. It's an interesting break in the pattern, so of course he's curious. He's the one who proposes impractical ideas. He's the one who spins crackpot theories, knowing she'll object. And he is the one who zigs and zags, knowing she'll gamely trudge along, the shortest distance between two points. He knows it's possible their patterns are resettling now, broken pieces now sliding into subtly new places, and so does she. Scully is not wearing clothes appropriate for feeding ducks, whatever those might be. She's wearing stern, sober clothes appropriate for investigating death, for doing autopsies. She did an autopsy this afternoon. A yet unidentified young woman, probably aged 18 to 25, multiple stab wounds in ritualistic patterns, fresh-faced and pretty, never getting any older. Sitting in the car, she looks down critically at her dark blazer, her heels. It's a warm evening, Mulder says, unthreading his tie, still watching her closely. You could probably lose your jacket, depending on what you have underneath, of course. She rolls her eyes a little, although his suggestion is not really an innuendo. Then she slips her shoulder out of her blazer, deciding to do as he suggests. She's wearing a sleeveless, white silk sheath beneath the coat. It's not something she'd normally wear alone, but it's not indecent either. Out of the car, she stretches out her newly exposed arms. She likes the feeling of the warmth of the dwindling late sun. Her arms are still too pale and thin. She's not completely gained back the weight yet since her illness. But right now, they also feel airy, light, unfamiliar in the best way. Mulder has peeled off his suit coat too and rolls up his shirt sleeves, giving her a little smirk. His forearms are golden and smooth. Later, when she thinks back on this evening, she'll have a hard time remembering exactly which town they're in, or even what state, and that will trouble her. Was it Iowa? Illinois? In fact, it's Wisconsin. A small town on a river, all bluffs and churches and white clapboard houses. Her mistake is forgivable. It isn't very far from Iowa or Illinois. It's a quiet town that has never seen anything like the troubling series of crimes they are investigating. In their whimsical enthusiasm for waterfowl, they decide to walk the small stretch of Main Street that represents a humble downtown to see if there's a place to buy something suitable to feed ducks. The plan is really no better to find than that. Mulder is scooting along boyishly with his hands in his pockets, shooting her occasional inquisitive looks. She smothers a smile. There is a small but serviceable corner store, scarcely more than a convenience store, that is still open. Behind the counter, an elderly woman, whose hair is dyed a shade of red a smidge brighter than Scully's, observes them with a disapproving expression. They discuss what to buy. Mulder is a traditionalist and wants to buy the ducks a loaf of white bread. But Scully has read that bread is not good for bird diets. She wants to get a small container of uncooked oats. Will the ducks really eat the oats, though? Mulder says doubtfully. Is this the equivalent of buying ducks a disappointing salad? Actually, ducks like eating greens, Scully says, so they'd hardly be disappointed. My partner knows it all, he shrugs. His words sound like they could be sarcastic, but his tone is sincere and casual, and it makes her flush a little. 
Mulder doesn't notice her reaction because his attention is now directed on a rack of warming meat located next to the cash register. So tell me, ma'am, about these gray hot dogs you have here, he says to the woman behind the counter, giving her a winning smile. Those are bratwurst, the woman says flatly, like he's a fool. Mulder practically presses his nose up to the case of rotating sausages. Scully, he says longingly. So they leave the store with a container of oats and some bratwurst and buns, as well as a bag of potato chips and two root beers. Scully comments that it's as though they've purchased dinner for a pair of hungry ten-year-olds, and Mulder just nods vigorously and bites into his bratwurst, obviously relieved that adult Scully is nowhere to be seen tonight. There are carved stairs set in the side of the short sandstone bluff that leads to the river. There's a narrow park on the bank, almost entirely empty of people. There's a weathered gray picnic table, the color of bone, where they settle in to eat their juvenile dinner. The little town hues to the curve of the slow-moving river, which now sits before them, dark green, flat, and wide. They're quiet as they eat, even Mulder. All around them the world is verdant, still. The sun has started to sink below the tree line on the opposite river bend, conferring upon the sky a marigold glow. "'Shh,' Mulder says, tilting his head, his finger to his lips. Scully is chewing bratwurst. She swallows, stares at him quizzically. "'Hear that?' he says. And she does. There's the sound of singing, voices in unison, echoing over the river. "'It sounds like angels,' she says in awe. "'Or extremely on-key banshees,' whispers Mulder. "'I think it's coming from that little church,' Scully says, pointing to a stone church perched over the bend of the river. "'Choir practice, most likely.' They listen as the choir goes through a series of warm-ups, drawing out their vowels and chords. Long O, short A, overlapping, morphing into one another, floating up, over, and above. The faint twinkle of a piano somewhere underneath. The sound transmits perfectly over the water. It's so peaceful, Scully remarks softly. She does not remark what else she is thinking. What a contrast this scene is from the unsettling case they've been working on all day how it somehow feels like they're out of time. Mulder, also listening, moves his head up and down slowly in a nod. The sinking sun has turned his skin shades of honey, but Scully notices the faint half-moons imprinted under his eyes. The case has been worrying him, but the half-moons have been there far longer than this case. She's not yet gained back the weight she lost during her cancer, and Mulder has not gained what parts of him he lost either. Hey, where are the ducks, Scully? Mulder says after a moment. I don't see a single duck. There are some in that bend over there, Scully points further down the river. Let's sit on the edge of the river and try to tempt them with oats to see if they'll swim over to us. So they sit on a grassy spot near the lip of the river, a damp spot dotted with little gray wisps of bird feathers, the tantalizing promise that at least once, anyway, ducks did frequent their location. Although Scully hesitates for a moment, they sit directly on the ground, even though they are both wearing dark suit pants, which they will no doubt get very dirty. Scully experimentally tosses a few handfuls of oats into the water, craning her head to see the reaction of the distant ducks. Are you going to call them, Scully? Mulder says, amused. Here, ducky, ducky, ducky. I prefer to preserve my dignity and let them simply discover us, Scully says. Good strategy, Mulder says, because you've got one fan already. A single duck has doggedly begun to swim towards them. The duck is immediately greeted with an overwhelming cascade of oats, as Scully and Mulder both toss large handfuls at the same time. The duck appears startled, but then seems to adapt, snapping food eagerly up within its reach. 
Success, Scully, Mulder beams at her, wiping oat dust on his pants. He then spins back to the duck and cups his hand around his mouth. Hey, go tell your friends, buddy. Free oats. The choir in the distant church has moved on past warm-ups and has begun to sing something resounding and joyful in Latin. Scully recognizes it as a setting of the Sanctus. Sanctus, Sanctus, Dominus Deus. She closes her eyes and concentrates on the lyrics. Mulder notices her listening. It's Bach, right? He says. Mass in B minor? My partner knows it all. Scully opens her eyes to give him an impressed nod, and he shrugs modestly. The male voices proclaim the word sanctus rather grandly. The female voices layer behind, dizzying, spiraling, ever-building. It's beautiful, Mulder says, but maybe too dramatic of a soundtrack for feeding ducks. They seem okay with it. Scully nudges him, gesturing. The rest of the ducks are headed their way in a determined little clump. And so they feed ducks together to a heightened choral scene. When Scully remembers it later, she will remember that the choir seems to crescendo every time she throws a handful, and it's preposterous, but it feels a little like a dance. She tries to feed all the ducks roughly the same. Mulder has a bias in favor of the smaller ducklings, the oddballs, and the loners. Probably everyone is overfed. They go through the entire container of oats very quickly. Mulder's handfuls are too big, Scully keeps telling him. He claims he can't do anything about it. He just has big hands. When they've exhausted the oat supply, the ducks linger, hopeful, staring at the two of them with hungry, gleaming onyx eyes. Mulder makes sad, sympathetic faces at them. She won't let me feed you any of our potato chips, he explains regretfully. She read an article. I only have their health in mind, Scully says archly, turning to return to sit. That's probably true, duck friends, Mulder stage whispers to the ducks. You can trust her, you know. She's a medical doctor. Scully's idea had been to feed the ducks on the river, and now they fed the ducks on the river, so, arguably, they should leave. But neither makes a move to go. They sit again in their spots on the grass at the river's edge, facing out to watch the sun set on slate-covered water. The ducks eventually meander away, destined for naps on distant shores. The late sunset is coloring the sky and the surrounding world with subtle variations of plum and gray. The choir has moved on from Bach, and they are now singing something quieter, slower-paced, more modern, a piece Scully doesn't know with a contralto solo. She and Mulder are quiet, too, watching birds make swooping parabolas over the river. It should be a peaceful moment, but Scully notes Mulder's finger twitching a little against his thigh. It's a quirk she recognizes. You're thinking about the case, aren't you? She says gently. He looks back at her. His face is now cast in swaths of violet by the disappearing sun. I'm sorry, he says. I was. It just seems so incongruous that the perpetrator should be from a place like this. Aren't they always, Mulder? Scully thinks. Is your theory still that the perp has a religious motive? Yeah, I think he sees himself as the leader of an Orphic mystery cult, Mulder says, reviving a religion of the ancient Greek world. I'm not sure he understands it exactly himself, but he thinks murdering these women is offering them some kind of immortality in the afterlife. That's why he left the messages in ancient Greek. Scully nods. From the choir, the single contralto voice sings an ethereal melody with no words. Mulder rotates his neck subtly back and forth, stretching one side and then the other. I'm still working out the details. I thought we might go talk to the people at the university tomorrow, see if there were any students of the classics who fit the profile. He lets out a breath. Anyway, we don't have to talk about it tonight. You're probably right to try to give our minds a rest. 
Scully nods again cautiously, but she doesn't think that's exactly why she brought him here, to give their minds a rest. She doesn't say that, though, because it certainly begs the question of why she did bring him here, a question she isn't sure she could answer. What's an Orphic mystery, Colt Mulder? She asks instead. An old Greek religion that sprang up around the mythological figure Orpheus, Mulder says. Orpheus, Scully repeats slowly. The word Orpheus instantly makes her think of the constellation of Lyra in the night sky, the shape of Orpheus's lyre. It also reminds her of her father, testing her on names of constellations on the beach. She wishes she and Mulder had a blanket so they could lie flat on their backs right now, peer up at the sky and watch the stars as they blink one by one from the gray-purple firmament. You know the story, Scully? Orpheus, the musician? Orpheus and Eurydice? She does know it, of course, but truthfully, hearing him recount a story in that moment, in this quiet, intense cadence, sounds somewhat delightful. She has the fleeting impulse to pretend that she doesn't remember it, but playing at being less intelligent is not a game she enjoys, especially not with Mulder. Yes, I know it, she says, running her fingers up and down her bare arms. But tell me anyway. Tell you anyway? He glances over at her, surprised, apparently not aware of the potential effect of his own storytelling gifts. Okay. He takes a deep breath. So you remember that Orpheus was the Greek hero who wasn't famous for fighting monsters. The musician, the poet, famous for playing his lyre and singing his ballads, a sensitive sort. As if they are responding to his cue, from over the river the choir starts something new, a traditional 19th century song in a minor key, a more appropriate, melancholy choice, something about being a stranger, about going over Jordan, about going over home. Orpheus is set to marry his true love Eurydice, but wouldn't you know it, their marriage is cursed, and on the day of their wedding, she's bitten by a snake, and she dies. Tragic, comments Scully, reaching for the potato chip bag. Yeah, Mulder says. Yeah, one of several tragic turns in this story. He takes another heavy breath. Well, Orpheus can't see letting matters lie as they are. He can't imagine continuing on without Eurydice. So he decides to travel to the realm of Hades, god of the dead, the underworld, to work out a deal to bring her back. Scully, who had been crunching quietly on a potato chip, turns hesitantly to look at him. The light is getting lower now, so he's becoming a silhouette, a gray and gaunt shade himself but she can see steely glint reflected in his eyes. Now this is one of those acts, Scully, that sounds really selfless and brave, but when you start examining it closely, you see that it really isn't. Because losing Eurydice isn't just about losing Eurydice. It's about losing himself. Orpheus can't imagine just going on with his life like normal, waking up, eating breakfast, playing his little liar, the daily grind without her there. Who is he without Eurydice? What is even the function of an Orpheus on this planet without a Eurydice? So he has no choice but to go to the underworld, see? It's a selfish act, really. Yeah, she says softly. He sounds like a total selfish monster, all right. So he takes his lyre and he goes down to the place from which no one ever returns, the underworld. And because he has this golden singing voice, he's able to charm Hades and his queen. And they agree to make a deal. They'll give him back Eurydice. All he has to do is walk back from the underworld in living daylight with Eurydice falling behind him. And all Orpheus has to do is not look back. Just walk towards the sun, facing forward, never look back. Never check behind him to see if she's really there. But he can't do that, Scully says tenderly, watching Mulder. He can't, Mulder says. He really can't. He can't help it. He doubts just for a moment. He has to turn around to make sure she's still with him. And then she's gone. Whoosh. She's a pillar of salt.
Not a pillar of salt, Scully says. That's a totally different story, Mulder. That's Lot's wife from Genesis. I know, he says. I hate that story, too. I hate both of them. His knee bounces a few times in agitation, and he crosses his arms moodily over his chest. She's taken aback. This is all a much stronger reaction than she would expect. Mulder has always seemed very fond of the folklore and mythology he dips into so often professionally. Rather too fond, actually. She isn't sure she wants to ask, but she does. Why... why do you hate it, Mulder? I think it would be obvious, Scully. Orpheus and Eurydice have almost succeeded. At something truly extraordinary. At fighting back something that you... aren't supposed to be able to fight at all. And then he has one moment, just one moment of self-doubt. And that's all for nothing. He loses her forever. To death. To oblivion. Ah, she says. You place a lot of responsibility on his shoulders. Why do those stories have to end like that, he says. I suppose there's some preachy lesson for a pre-modern society about never doubting, about always trusting God, the authority. Yes, Scully says tentatively. Also, I imagine it's hard to just write stories about being happy. Happiness is an extremely uneventful subject. Hmm. Mulder says, sounding unconvinced. She thinks for a moment about happiness, about moments in her life she's been really, really happy. And for all her recent troubles, there are many. She can stack those moments up in her mind like a pile of old postcards. She wonders what Mulder knows about happy moments. And Mulder, Scully says, her voice a little unsteady, you know, that's not how the story ends, not really. He doesn't say anything for a moment. How does the story end then, Scully? Well, she hesitates. He makes the deal. She leaves the underworld. He doesn't look back. He looks over at her now, and because of the low light, she can't make out any detail of the expression on his face. Then what? I guess life goes on like normal for him, Scully says. Waking up, eating breakfast, playing his little liar. The daily grind. Not much to write a ballad about, Mulder says. No, Scully says. That does sound pretty uneventful, he says. A tiny pause. What about her? Oh, I'm sure she recovers her strength, Scully says. She tries not to be afraid. She worries for him, of course. You don't go to the underworld like that and not suffer some residual effects. They both went to the underworld, though, he says. True, she says. Yes, and it will probably always leave its fingerprints. On both of them. Yeah, he says. It would. The choir has stopped singing now. Practice is evidently over. The absence of music changes the character of the dimming river bank. It is the sound of the river that stands out now. The steady rush and trickle of water washing relentlessly over rocks. But, Mulder says, and he hesitates, because he knows this is the tricky spot. The uncharted part of the map. But they do get one another back. She wouldn't do this if she could see his face more clearly. But she can't, and the low light conditions make her bold. So she shifts closer to him, sliding a few feet across the grass, probably badly muddying the rear end of her work pants. Then, haltingly, gingerly, she rests her head against his shoulder, her face peering out towards the river. She thinks this is probably a questionable category of touching Mulder, a category that is eminently understandable when one is dying, but not easy to explain exactly once one is surviving again. Nevertheless, they sit there, her temple resting against his shoulder. After a moment, his shoulder begins to shift underneath her cheek. 
She thinks maybe he's moving away, but instead she realizes his arm is simply readjusting, reaching to slide around her back, pulling her in tighter, and closing her. We don't do this, she thinks, not unless someone is dying. This isn't what we do when we're just sitting, doing nothing. There is the weight of his long, restless body folded tightly around and over her. The hot touch of his forearm, his hand resting flush atop her own, his distinctive scent, the thump of his heartbeat, her molder, exquisitely living. She thinks it must be one of the effects of the underworld, because she realizes how she's accustomed now to this, whatever this is, to putting aside her loneliness and fear when she's with Mulder like this, and she can't give it up. She just can't break this little habit. She doesn't want to. Are you okay, Mulder? She asks softly, out of the blue. Yeah, he says. Funny you should ask. Scully's face smiles involuntarily, an expression he probably can't see. I don't have that much experience with it, Scully, Mulder whispers, but I was just thinking that for this moment anyway, I might be happy. They sit there in silence as the darkness grows thicker and thicker around them. The world is very still. Scully later won't remember what motivated them to get up and walk back to the car. If you like this story, please follow the link to the writer's page and leave some love. Kudos, comments, or subscribe. They'll love hearing from you. Then you can head over to our Patreon page and contribute to Audio Fanfic Podcast. As a member, you are granted early access to one new story per month. That's www.patreon.com slash audiofanficpod. Thank you for listening, and remember, the stories are out there.